0: Friends, take your Bible and turn to Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5. We return to the text that we've been in in these few weeks and we will be in again today. Galatians 5, the first 15 verses. We're going to read them to set our hearts and set the table again today. So let me do that to begin as we've been doing in this study Galatians 5, starting in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh." But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That's been our passage, those have been our verses that we've been in these few weeks. And you can see right at the heart of that passage, and certainly at the beginning and at the end, is freedom. Freedom. And specifically, we see this right in the heart of the passage freedom in Christ. Not just freedom per se, this ambiguous notion of freedom, but freedom in Christ. And that's been our focus. We've been very intentional these few weeks to make that distinction. And we have noted, probably you're maybe tired of hearing it, but it is the text here. We've noted extensively through this series how the biblical definition, what we just read, of freedom in Christ challenges the modern definitions that flood us. And I would submit to you this morning, Westmount, that we can't say that enough because we're swimming in incorrect definitions of freedom. Definitions of freedom, and we've said this, that would submit to you that freedom is no restraint, no hindrance, do as I please. We've talked about that at length. Listen, those definitions will always rally a crowd today. Always. People always have a raised fist for that kind of freedom. No restraint. But freedom in Christ, as we've seen, is not freedom without obligation. No, instead, we looked at, and here's, again, by way of a brief, brief recap, we looked at freedom's command. Look at verse 1. Stand firm. What did we say a few weeks ago? Don't go back. Don't regress. No, freedom in Christ is movement forwards and upwards. Not a movement to self and to our desires. No, that's not uh, what freedom in Christ is. That is what is defined there, but it's not defined here. But it is freedom to choose, here it is, freedom to choose what we couldn't choose before. Remember, under the law, you were powerless to choose righteousness, to choose what is good consistently and perfectly, and to choose God, to choose God. Here, in verse 1, stand firm, don't go back. In our flesh, we are prone to this. We're going to see this today. That is why freedom, true freedom, has obligation and needs instruction. So that's freedom's command. We also looked at freedom's character. Simply, what does freedom look like then? If we're challenging modern definitions, well, what does freedom look like? What is its character? Well, verses 2 to 6 told us freedom in Christ means Christ alone for justification and for glorification. And the character of freedom in Christ in between those in between justification and glory, as we await glory, is summed up. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but here it is, only faith working through love. That's your currency, faith working through love. That's freedom's character, and we have much more to say about love. This passage will today. Then, the dimension that we spent the bulk of our time on last week, verses 7 to 12, freedom's confidence. Freedom today, as confident to remember as the prodigal son and his demand for freedom, that biblical picture, misguided picture of demanding freedom. The young son, give me freedom. Freedom, initially, temporally, so sure, right? And this is still true today. Like that young son, how many, how many look at the world, look at youth, look at money and say, that's freedom, that's freedom. But freedom, as we commented, that kind of freedom, when you think about the young prodigal, completely cut off from everything else. And this is really huge when we think about freedom's confidence. Freedom that is completely severed, here it is, from the one that enabled the freedom. Right. This comes through in the prodigal story. Think about this, the father that birthed him, the father who had the inheritance, the father that gave permission, all of that from the father, but he says, let me cut the umbilical cord now so it's only me. The Father is the one that enabled that freedom. The confidence of freedom comes from the Father, but the Son wants to cut that off. And as such, when you cut off the source of freedom, freedom then automatically has a shelf life. It's not the confidence, that kind of freedom, it's not the confidence that Paul describes to the Galatians here. And this is what's so stark. Paul talks about freedom, particularly in verse 10. And that confidence, again, as we looked at this last week, is confidence, and here it is, not in self and autonomy. And, and does this not challenge modern conventions? Right? I think about it as in the world of sports. I love sports, and you hear this all the time. The athlete that boasts in what? What they can do. But you hear this. This permeates everything, a, a confidence in self and autonomy. In fact, we, if we're not careful, Westman could fall into that same trap. Just let me do it my way. Because I'm so confident in doing it my way. We love autonomy. Don't tether me to anything. But the confidence expressed, look at verse 10, is not in self. Do you see it? Confidence, what does Paul say? In the Lord. He can say all of these bold, direct things because his confidence is not in the Galatians and not in the Apostle Paul. His confidence, he says, I am sure of this because it's in the Lord, in the Lord, not in flesh. That confidence is not only opposite to self-confidence, as we see today, but that confidence in the Lord and his work, as Paul noted, look at verse 11, is offensive. It's offensive. This is where we ended last week. Offensive because the cross stands not as a tower to man's achievement, right? No, no, no. But as a powerful symbol of Christ's work alone. We talked about this last week. The cross obliterates human pride. The cross says there is nothing you can do. Nothing. And that reality is just simply offensive to a fallen humanity. Listen, Jew and Greek alike, 1st century, 21st century, it's just plain offensive. Yet the offense of the cross, the folly, the stumbling block, is not an offense to you, Christian, is it? It's not offensive to you. No. In fact, it's your freedom. You look at the cross, the towering achievement of the Son of God, and you say, in that I am free. That's freedom's confidence. Well, that's where we left off. Let's just pick right back up where we left off last time. Two more dimensions of freedom that we will look at today. Biblical freedom, freedom in Christ. And I assure you, we will get through this passage today. We're going to fasten our seatbelts and get through it today. So let's turn our attention to verse 13 and our next one, freedom's caution. Freedom's caution. Look at verse 13 with me. For you were called to freedom, brothers, if you think that that sounds familiar, it's the same kind of motif and sense that you get in verse 1. He's just really saying the same thing if you look at the two of them in comparison. A very similar proclamation there, as we saw at the beginning of the chapter there in verse 1. And remember there, more as we noted in verse 1, that Paul, what did he do in that first verse? He gave a truth, then what? He gave a command. Do you see that? A truth, and then here's a command. You see that in verse 1. Christ has set us free, truth. Therefore, command, stand firm. Do not submit again to slavery. Well, that was the truth and a command with a purpose. The reason it was there was to combat legalism. Remember, we talked about that? To combat legalism. Legalism that is attracted to law. So this is the sensibility that is drawn toward law. This is the sensibility that looks to find refuge in man's law. Give me the cage of laws. Give me the, the boundary and the, all of that of laws. That's what I want. And that's the legalist. is drawn to that. Well, here, there, Paul's point was, Christian, you are free in Christ. You're not going to earn anything in those man-made laws. And even more, you can't because Christ has liberated you. And even more, if you look at verse 1, don't go back and submit yourself to the very chains that he freed you from. And we looked at this extensively, right? The folly of being free from chains and like, put them back on me again. And that's what he talked about. Law works. That was there. But here in this verse 13, Paul begins now, we talked about the two extremes in Galatians. He's going to tackle the opposite end of the extreme, not the pull to law and legalism, and I mean, in one sense, I feel if you've been tracking through the study, we've exhausted that, right? We've talked about that, but you recognize something else is going on that could happen if we're not careful. And that's not the draw to law and legalism. It's the pull to license and liberty. And I'd submit to you. This is the problem of the day here again, the truth. And here you have a truth. Look at it followed by a command. You see the same pattern, truth. Command, Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. There is your truth. But then the command, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Same pattern. Now, before we get into precisely what that expression means or that command means, we need to pull the lens back for a moment. Paul has argued at length about being freed from what? The slavery of the law. Paul has proclaimed freedom so much that you likely see how this happens, right? He's proclaimed freedom and freedom, and you almost, if you've been tracking in this study, say, well, I know where this could go. It's the pendulum that we talk about. Westman, I feel like we talk about this all the time. Not a course correction, but a what? An overcorrection, right? This is the story of humanity, and certainly true in the church, beloved, for a variety of reasons. And... At Westmount over the past five years, we've talked about many of them. Balance for humanity in the church is just so elusive. We just can't find this. We can't get the pendulum to rest in the middle. We are, and if we think about this, if we do a little examination of our own hearts, we're partial to sides, aren't we? We like to sit under a placard and a label that says, Well, this is me. I'm not a legalist. I love my liberty. Or someone who would say, well, I know about liberties, and I've been burnt by them, so we need rules, right? We just, we love the the labels, and that's what we sit under. We're prone to this. And here, if one pole is legalism, those drawn to laws, rules, regulations, and the other pole, like we just said, is libertinism, those against laws and instructions and so on. And in the church, we've said, this is not a world thing, this is a thing in the church, and we talked about antinomianism, those against laws, and in general terms of this point, we've commented on the beliefs of those that are so against law. They feel that there is no need, nor is there a mandate for any law now, because why? We're under grace, and grace is free. That's the belief. That's the pendulum belief. And here in verse 13, we now have that belief described. What's the manifestation of it? Look at it. Freedom that is used as an opportunity for the flesh. So this is where we are now. We ride this pendulum with Paul, not to do it, but to understand it. And there are two words here that call our attention, opportunity and flesh. So let's look at those two so we understand what Paul is saying. Number one, opportunity. That word is very familiar, I believe, to you. We know what it means to seek opportunity. It means to look for a chance, to look for a break, to look for an opening, now, it can be positive. It's the student looking for a volunteer opportunity. That's a positive thing. Or it can be negative. The thief looking for his next job, an opportunity for his next job. You see, in one case it's positive, in one case it's negative. But here's the thing. The idea of opportunity is the same. Looking for an opening. Looking for a chance to do something. And here, the context I'd submit to you, Westmount, is very much Negative. In fact, you have a negative command being given, do not give an opportunity for the flesh. And what does that mean? Well, the next term then confirms what this opportunity is. Look at it, and you get that word there, the flesh. Now, that word is a bit more broad, and I have to admit to you, to to give a full doctrinal uh, understanding of the flesh would take the rest of our morning, and that's why we love our Wednesday nights. Because we'll be able to go through the fruit of the Spirit and the flesh. We're going to do that on Wednesdays. So we're not going to be able to get as comprehensive as we want to on a Sunday morning. But we are able to look at the spectrum today, which we will do. And we're going to point to what Paul has in view here. And there's two ends of this spectrum of the flesh. So the flesh can refer to, on one hand, the physical flesh. I mean, you look at your hands, right? We're talking about material, physical flesh, that covering over your bones, I mean, it sounds silly to say, but that's a spectrum of the flesh. That's on one end, and the Bible has references to that, right? The covering of our bodies. On the other end, there's not a physical sense. There's an ethical sense of the flesh. Now, what do I mean by that? That which represents our humanity. When you see the word flesh, it's used in an ethical sense to represent humanity. But listen, not just humanity. In the Bible, when you see flesh, it presents the flesh most often not just as humanity, but as fallen humanity. That's why you hear Christians talk about that. I was in the flesh when I did this, or that was a fleshly thing to do. So it's not just a matter of your covering. There's this ethical sense, this domain of behavior, and it's fallen humanity. The flesh, then, to put it simply, is human nature as it has become through sin. This is particularly the case in the New Testament. The flesh, then, is naturally, through original sin, prone to sin. Now, again, we don't have the luxury this morning of a full theology of the flesh, but suffice to say here, the flesh and its relationship to sin stand naturally, here it is, in opposition to God. I think we understand that. The flesh stands from the garden in direct opposition to God. The flesh says, this is my way. The Spirit says, this is the right way. And Paul will show this opposition, this ancient opposition. And that, of course, is the table setter for those very famous passages that we're going to get to in the weeks ahead, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is set against what? The works of the flesh. You see those two things stand in opposition to one another. And that's the key we need to grab onto with the term flesh here. The flesh is that aspect of humanity that we all have, all of us. Christian, you too. We all have that still. We're going to talk about what that looks like. That is against the Spirit, saved, secure, all of that. But there's a domain in us, hence the commands here, not to follow it, of the flesh. Yes, we're freed, in a sense, from the flesh, the penalty of fallen flesh. We're freed from it, praise God, free to Christ. Yes, we're freed from sin and the price demanded because of fallen flesh. But church, even though we are freed... From the flesh's cost, we're not immune to the flesh's consequences. That's a reality of the Christian life, and that is here and now. And beloved, can I just pause for a moment to say, if we don't understand this, we are susceptible to all kinds of difficulties. If we don't understand there's still this realm that can have influence in us, called the flesh, that is directly opposed to the spirit, this is where our problems stem from. There is a war. Ephesians 6 articulates much of that in a broader sense, but we need to understand that. This is living this life now in flesh, if you will, with all its pulls and pitfalls, living each day as we await the redemption of our flesh, our body. This is the argument in Romans eight twenty three, right? With creation, our flesh does what, in a sense? Our bodies groan. We groan for things to be made right. Paul summed up this tension for the Christian aptly in this very letter. So if you're struggling this morning with how can we be in the flesh and out of the flesh, look at Galatians 2.20. We looked at this verse before. It's just so helpful. Look at what Paul says. Listen carefully to the words he uses. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So there's Christ, the Spirit, who's operative, right, in him. God is in him. And the life I now live, where? In the flesh. I live by the flesh? No, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, that's your tension. You're in the flesh now, Christian, but you're not of the flesh. I hope that makes sense. It's the same way you're in the world now, Christian, but you're not of the world. But in the same way where you need to be careful about being in the world and not being influenced by the world, in the same way, beloved, you need to be sensible of the fact that you're in the flesh, but you're not of the flesh anymore, praise God. And in the same way we need to be careful of the world, we need to be careful of the flesh. Now, with those definitions set before us, which I pray help to some degree, let's return to our verse, verse 13. It says, for you are called to freedom, brothers, a believer, Christian, this is to you, you are saved, you are free, in the fullness of time for eternity, you're secure. However, that doesn't mean there is no danger here and now. This is what we've been building to. Hence, a caution freedom's caution. Continue. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. We mentioned the consequences of the flesh, the fall's effect on you today. The flesh, that fallen entity, still within you, and listen, still looking for an opportunity to do something against the Spirit. And of course, Christian, you don't want to give the flesh an opportunity, right? I know you don't, because you pray it every day. Sometimes it's as simple as the Lord's Prayer. Lord, lead me not into temptation. God, I don't want to sin against you today. But there's a reason why we pray that prayer and why Jesus taught us to pray that. And here in this verse, the caution is that we can lead ourselves into trouble. Do you see that? This is what Paul is exhorting the Galatians, that you, Christian, can actually be the agent of giving the flesh an opportunity. And this is what's sobering for us this morning. Here are the caution, and let's look at the context, is that there's something that is good. And what's the good thing? Your freedom. Beloved, you are free. You're free, and that's a good thing. But that good thing, we can take that, and the flesh sees it as an opportunity for evil, and I, I, I don't want to go into too much detail here, but I think we understand some of the operations of the flesh in this regard, where the flesh looks for uh, an opportunity. So you might say, "How so?" Let me just simply keep it at this. Consider again your freedom, Christian, and why definitions are important. We've labored for this in Galatians. Why are definitions so important? It's not a matter of, well, anyone, you know, relative truth and we can all have our things about freedom. No, the Bible talks about freedom in a way. But this is where if freedom is simply a matter of what you're freed from, rules and laws and to-dos, if freedom is simply defined by no restriction, no hindrance on anything, then I want you to just consider the possibilities. Just think for a moment. If that's what freedom is, the sky's the limit in your depravity, and in your flesh, right? The sky's the limit for that. No possibilities. And we know what lurks inside the human heart. We have many verses that tell us about that. The flesh is ignited with these opportunities, that fallen dimension of your being that got you in trouble. And under the opportunity of freedom, this is what I want to cast before you, because this verse does. The picture of the flesh is waiting. is just waiting for an opportunity literally to pounce. We have relatives that have a dog, and I'm sure those of you dog lovers know the dog, right? By the table when you sit down to eat, what's the dog doing? Is the dog off playing with the ball in the corner? It's waiting for an opportunity to pounce before that piece of ham hits the ground, it pounces. Beloved, that's your picture of the flesh. That's the flesh. It's funny for the dog lovers, but for the Christian, it's reality. That's the flesh waiting to pounce. And unlike the dog, and we bring in the relatives and show them the tricks, the flesh wants to destroy. And Paul is exhorting these Galatians and you two to say, are you vigilant or are you giving the flesh an opportunity? The flesh says this, have you heard this Christian? You are free. It's no longer about rules. That's a Pharisee thing. Have you heard that? You are free, Christian. It's no longer about the places you can't go, the people you can't see, or the shows you can't watch. Christian, you're free. Do whatever you like. Do whatever you like. No, that's the stuff of legalism. The flesh says, I'm free to do as I please. And so what do you do? You do as you please. In the name of freedom. You're free to, right? Right? And in a sense, beloved, hear me, I have to be careful with a text like this, we are neutral to those things, we are free. Paul is not saying here, that person, that place, that show, although that's a whole other story today, but it is the trigger and the key that you have just given to your flesh by opening that door. It's the consequences. In those effects, I would submit to you, you are no longer free. After you watched that thing or met that person, you are now enslaved. And really, in the end, your freedom simply led to what? An opportunity for the flesh. And the fading cries of freedom are followed by the cries of sinful regret. Every time. The flesh ignited, charged, aroused by the opportunity freedom afforded, all in the name of freedom. The flesh duped you again, and you took the bait, all in the name of freedom. Beloved, let us not miss freedom's caution here, because it is not just here, as we'll see in a moment. I'm talking to my boys a lot about denominations now, and I wish you could get a balance between these two denominations, our beloved Baptists and our beloved Presbyterians. The Baptist, the, the, the Legalists, right? These are the ancient things. I'm not saying it's true today. Have all the boundaries and rigid things and they can be the legalists and Presbyterians say we're free to watch and do whatever we want and you just, this is where even denominationally we can't get this right. We can't get in the middle to say, well, wait a minute, we are free. We are free. But are you giving in your freedom an opportunity for the flesh? I had a dear brother. I don't get to see him every uh, day or every week or even every month. Got together with him recently and just so providential. And I was just so struck how he is growing in the Lord. I mean, we had a moment where we're talking about the Bible and he literally just got this recall. And I wanted to say, where in the world is this coming from? I mean, you're not the guy I met a few months ago. And he said to me, Jason, I I recognize what my flesh wants to do. And I've just cut, cut all these things out of his life, which I know for many of us, we'd say, well, you're a legalist. No, he's a Christian pursuing holiness. And I could not believe how he had grown in two months. Two months. You just want to say, all that, two hours in front of the TV at night, right? Start cutting some of these things off. Holy, the flesh is waiting for an opportunity to just pounce. And this is Paul's point here. This is precisely what he is saying. Don't give the flesh an opportunity. Yes, we're free to many things. And listen, beloved, that's a whole other message on how we discern and what freedom looks like. But the fact that we'd be more gravitated to what I can do versus what I shouldn't be doing tells you something, tells you what voice you're listening to. So helpful for us today. But listen, here's the thing. This idea of giving the flesh an opportunity, it's not just a verse that we're picking on here. I want you to see this. Let me just give you a brief survey. This is the testimony of Scripture. 1 Peter 2.16, David took this through this talking about free to serve. First Peter 2.16 embedded there, live as people who are free. Live as people who are free. So live in your freedom. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but then this, living as servants of God. Isn't that amazing? You're free, Christian. Live in your freedom, but don't use that freedom as a cover-up for your flesh and for evil. Live as servants of God. 1 Corinthians 10.23, all things are lawful but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Beloved, let me put it to you this way. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Can I say that again? I need this. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Can I tell you just from a counseling perspective, how many times just because they could has led to all this misery? And you know what you hear when you intersect into whatever year 17 or week 58? I feel like I'm just enslaved to it. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And then this, Romans 13, 14. Listen to the language in Romans 13. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on Jesus. Don't just sing about it put on Jesus, put on Jesus, and don't make provision for the flesh. Put on Christ. There it is. I mean, that's your takeaway. Put on Christ, a reminder of true freedom. Freedom in Christ means we are free to him, free in him, free through him. Not free to any worldly choice or any desire we want, True freedom then means in our choices, here's your diagnostic, in your choices, Christian, is this something that Christ freed you to do? Before you go to that place, before you meet that person, before you watch that show, is this something Christ freed you to do? It's a simple question. It's been so helpful for me. But if I could press the point, because it's pressed in this text, one more, I want you to think even deeper, beloved, of your choices. Did Christ fulfill the law, live the perfect life, lay down that life? Did Christ bear God's wrath and bear the humiliation of death on a cross? Did Christ set you free to choose what is good and right over evil just so that you could now be free to gratify your flesh? No, no. Christ died not so we could serve the flesh. Christ died so that we could serve him. That's why he died to set us free from this flesh that wants to do choices opposite the spirit. And that is why, church, we need freedom's caution. One more. Freedom's care. Freedom's care. Look at the final phrase in verse 13. But through love serve one another. We've mentioned all the backwards thinking with freedom today, and church, could anything be more radically opposed to freedom today than this? That in freedom, we are called not to ourselves and not to serve ourselves, but look at it, as Paul says here, freedom through love to serve one another. I want you to just stop from, could anything be more backwards to the narrative you get today? I mean, this is the opposition of flesh and spirit. Serve one another. I want you to look at that word serve. The word that Paul uses there is from the root word doulos. We've talked about doulos a lot here at Westmount. You would be familiar from that word from the past studies we've done. Doulos means, of course, slave. It means slave. That's what it means. You probably have, if you're reading out of the ESV, a little footnote that says that, right? And one of the reasons it is footnoted is because that's a very sensitive word, as it should be. We have a lot of baggage with that word, slave, That word, of course, indeed does have a lot of bad baggage from our forefathers, so let's correct that. We're not talking, when you see slave here, we're not talking about 19th century plantation owners. That's not what we're talking about, with their whip looking down on slaves. That's wrong in every dispensation and era, That's wrong. Now, this word, this healthy biblical word, looks in the other direction. It's going from here to here. The other, from slave to master. This is the willful, voluntary, loving submission of one under another in the church. Beautiful. And this is what true freedom is. Look at it. Both the will and the ability to come under, to submit yourself. True freedom doesn't fight for its rights. True freedom surrenders them. And even as I say that, you recognize now that's just antithetical to the world. Because we're all about what today? Rights. True freedom in the Bible, according to Jesus, says you don't hold on to your rights. You don't push the pedal to the metal to make sure you get every last ounce. True freedom, according to the Bible, says you surrender your rights and you submit yourself as a slave to another. So countercultural, as David has been teaching us. True freedom surrenders its rights. Christian freedom in Christ is this, expressed in love and in this way... Look, through submitting to one another, through becoming a slave to one another. So that's literally what it says. Become a slave to one another. This is freedom's care. And like freedom's caution, if we pay attention, this is all over the Holy Bible. Ephesians 5.21 describes this, how we are to what? Submit to one another. That's what it says. Philippians 2.3, think about freedom today. Philippians 2.3 three says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humiliation count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 1 Corinthians 9, 19, for though I am free from all, talk about freedom again, Paul says, for though I am free, right, from all, talk about liberation, I have made myself a servant or a slave to all. That's the gospel picture, a servant to all. And those are just samples. What about the example, Christ Jesus, our Lord? Do you remember that event on the way to the cross where Jesus had to put on his referee jersey between James and John? They were having a little ego spat. And Jesus had to break this up. I mean, James and John are arguing about what? Who is great? In fact, who is greater? And Jesus says this, in the wake of that prideful bash, Mark 10:42 Whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Same word. Then of course we have that infamous picture, the infamous example during the last supper. Right? What did Jesus do when he took off his outer robe? He used it to wash the feet, the lowest deed you could do than washing the dirty feet of the disciples almighty creator, scraping the dirt from the heels of those around him. Be a slave to all. Be a slave to all. And then when he was done, he said this in John 13, 15, I have given you an example. Do this as I have done to you. Church, this is freedom's care, freedom not to serve yourself, but to serve others. This is, in fact, the heartbeat of the church This is not just some, right? You know, those really spiritual ones in the church that do that for others. This is not the 80-20 stuff. This is the heartbeat for every Christian that would profess to be part of a church. How do we say that? Look at those two words in verse 13. One another. That is what we would call a reciprocal relationship. That means I'm doing it to you, you're doing it to me. And can you imagine that economy of a church? I do it to you, you do it to me. It's like that picture, right? You got like a dozen people and they're all scratching each other's back, but they're in a circle. No one's going without, but they're all giving. That's the picture in the church. It's just a beautiful reciprocal relationship, back and forth. That is a gospel life picture. Everyone serving one another. No one obsessing about what am I going to get? What am I going to eat? What am I going to do? Everyone obsessing about what? Are their needs met? I mean, this is just bankrupt today in church. I mean, it, it, it's not that. We were talking, were talking about membership class this morning, about this whole nature. People go into church. What did you get out of church today? We bring consumerism into this, and this is what disrupts the one another's. Versus how can I serve someone today? I mean, I see that need. I see them sat in the corner. They can't get up here. That's the economy of the gospel. Now listen, that is indeed a gospel picture, but it's actually even bigger than that. Look at verse 14. This is what's just amazing. Paul goes somewhere that likely the reader doesn't expect. This is marvelous when you see what Paul is doing in his letter. He goes to a place you would never expect him to go to prove this. Where is it? It is the law. He goes to the law. Yes, that entity that he's been seemingly arguing against for the balance of the letter, right? You say, why is he going to the law? Well, now here he turns back to it, and it's not in a negative light. Here's the thing. You would think he would because the law has been a bad word in Galatians, right? Or at least it may have seemed so. And that's because he's turned the corner. Remember, we turned the corner. We talked about legalism, liberty. There's a sense where Paul is now doing that balance and correction for us. He's turned the corner from the doing to the fulfilling. Doing, as Paul has argued, is the requirement. It's that doing. It's that sense where I have to do this to be right with God. We talked about that, right? Anything that motivates your action where you think God will give me brownie points for this, that's the doing. That's doing the law for requirement. I need to do this. And that was Paul's point then in everything to this point in all those passages about justification. However, that is not Paul's point now. This is no longer about doing the law. And you say, well, wait a minute. Aren't these imperatives? Yes, this is about fulfilling the law. Fulfilling the law. This is living out what the law expresses. Paul is no longer talking about salvation and trying to earn favor with God. We've covered that. And in one sense, I know, Christian, you felt that if you've been in this study, you're like, we've covered that. We've covered that. This is no longer about those things, right? This is no longer about earning with God. This is now fulfilling. This is not justification. This is sanctification. This is living out your redemption. Christian, you are freed from doing all of the law perfectly, which you can't, but you're freed from it, but that freedom doesn't also free you from the standard of the law for life. I mean, think about this with me. We give all of these illustrations, and I hope they're helpful. Think about the pardoned criminal. A criminal is pardoned. He doesn't have to, he gets his sentence, stayed, right? He doesn't have to do it. Well, he's not pardoned to go into society, and now he can live lawless, right? Right? It doesn't work that way. He goes into society so that he can obey the standard. Well, if it's true in society with pardoned criminals, how much more true in the spiritual life? Because we're free doesn't mean we just don't have any standard. Christ didn't come to abolish the law, right, in the sense where you don't have to do that anymore. He came to fulfill it so that we, and this is the beauty, so that we can fulfill it. And so, to us Christians, we can. Freed now to freely live out the standard. And here's the beauty that you couldn't before. Have you not shed a tear that time you chose righteousness when you know a hundred times you chose evil? I know I have. Because I can now in Jesus Christ. And that's freedom freedom to get out of that cycle because of Jesus. Praise God even more, more than just being able to do something, this is something Jeremy took us through and the guys through, to look at the law in a way you've never looked at it before. Romans 7, you have this picture where Paul looks at it, and he's just in disgust at the law. He's just indignant. I can't do this. And look at you, this pedagogue, this thing, I can't do it. But now, we have the largest passage in all of Scripture is what? Psalm 119 that talks about what? Your disgust for the law? Your love for it. And beloved, I pray, here's another diagnostic. I know this is hard this morning. It always beats me up first. Do you love the law? Do you love it? You say, God, I love your precepts because they keep me right and whole. Is that your heart? Do you love the law? Because look at what Paul says next all of the law, summed up the whole law in a word. Paul doesn't look at the hundred little bits, right? He doesn't get out his Mishnah and starts breaking down all these bits. No. What is the totality of the law? Paul sums it up in one word, and it's from Leviticus 19.18, the passage that Ken read for us. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love, that is the whole of the law. And you say, love? Isn't that the opposite of law? Love? I, don't, I didn't think there was any concert between love and law. Well, beloved, there is. And this is it. The verse says the whole law. In fact, it says this, look at it, the whole law is fulfilled in love. Again, what Ken read this morning, if you're listening carefully, it was in the Old Testament law, and it said things like this. Don't gather the edge of your fields. Leave them for the poor. That's the Old Testament. Don't oppress or rob your neighbor. Don't slander your neighbor. That's in Leviticus. And don't hate your brother in your heart. That's not even Sermon on the Mount. That's Leviticus 19. But love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, if you didn't pay close attention, you would think that's out of the mouth of Jesus in the first century. But it isn't. Not only is that in the Old Testament, but smack dab in the heart of the law. And even more, it flows right out of the fountainhead of the law. Do you see it? The fountainhead of the law, which contrary to what? The flesh and other things and other people would say, it's not a bunch of random things that God dreamed up like some killjoy for a bunch of people to do. People look at the law in the Bible that way. Well, what is that? No, church, that is not the law. That is what many claim the law is. And by the way, that is precisely why we can fall trapped to that and say why they're against it, because that was a very old thing. And in our effects of trying to get continuity or discontinuity, we all of a sudden just sever ourselves off from the ancient text. In that posture, they stand not only against the heart of the law, but against the very heart of God himself. And that heart and expression didn't change when you hit the New Testament, nor, listen, did that hardened expression all of a sudden change at the cross. This is where the antinomian will take you every time. And they should. I remember reading books about this a few years ago. The antinomian is exceptional at taking you to the cross. Every single time they'll take you to the cross and say, Well, that's why you can sin. Or I should say, That's why you have forgiveness, but soon that, way, that gives way to this is why it's okay. They're very good at going to the cross. And so are we. But this didn't end at the cross, this love of God. No. Love and love for one another not only continues, but listen, well after Christ. Let me take you 60 years after Jesus. 60 years. That's a generation and a half after Jesus. Listen to this, 1 John 2.7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. And you would say, okay, John, what's that commandment? 1 John 3.11, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Leviticus 19, 1 John 3. 1 John 4, seven. beloved, let us love one another, for love is, here it is, love is a nice ethic for politicians that really rallies troops. You know what it says? Love is from God. Love is from God. And most bluntly, listen to this in 1 John 4, 21. And this commandment, I mean, there's that bad word again. This commandment, we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God. This is who God is. God is love. And here's the thing. When we think about God giving us love, this is the Christian then who is a Christ follower, a God follower. This is the Christian's dutiful service, the commandment, the law that we're held to, to love one another, Because that's who our God is. This is not a law that earns, but this is a command that expresses. I hope we see the difference. A whole law fulfilled in one word expressed to each other, revealing whose we really are. They'll know we are God followers by what? Our love and the way we treat one another. John Calvin said it best. I quote him right here, word for word. God is invisible. But... He represents himself to us in the brethren, and in their persons demands what is due himself. Love to men springs only from the fear and love of God. Amen to <laughs> that. True love of the brother can only come from God. Martin Lord jones I can quote out you all kinds of stuff that I'd read this week, talks about this. Only God... When you are saved, all of a sudden, the way that you look at humanity and brethren in the church is different. All of a sudden, that adversarial relationship changes. Have you noticed that as a Christian? You find yourself loving and caring about people that you never understood that dynamic at all before. And that's because, beloved, it's not you. It's God's love, that regenerated heart. All of a sudden, you love the brother's. And that's an important reminder of who and what love is. Why? And here it is as we think about from God being against what? That kind of love for one another has never been natural to what? The flesh. The flesh knows nothing of this. True today and true yesterday, look at verse 15. Think about the flesh. What does the flesh cause? If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Look at those adjectives, verbs, biting, devouring, consuming one another. Words that, by the way, would describe, in at least this historical context, an animal fight. This is what are the words that would have been described. In the arena, scratching and clawing to what? And what's the outflow of the arena fights back then? Death. And just a nice peaceful death in a hospital cot? No, bludgeoning. But beloved, listen, and let's feel the text. Let's feel the text. This is what happens when we are loveless. This is when we follow the flesh and we give it an opportunity to do its logical ends. We may not be in a Roman arena, but we have our own agendas embedded in our heart. Why didn't they do that for me? Why did they not do that for me? Ugly and devastating and like animals, a life less than humane. That is a life without love. That is a life without freedom's care. And sadly, that is the reality of many today, scratching, clawing, shoving, and stepping over one another. Not once or twice, but listen, there's a pattern of life. You turn on your TV and you see this all over the place, right? This is what people do. How can they step over one another to get ahead? But Westmount, by the grace of God, and I feel in so many ways that we need to hear this as we close this passage. Not you. Not us. I say this to some of you all the time. Reason number 178, why I love Westmount Bible Chapel so much. Because you love. I came in here yesterday, and there were five cars in the parking lot. And you know what they were doing? Serving you. You're going to go downstairs and eat, and you're not going to think anything of it. And you were served like mad yesterday. I came in this morning with the joys. We're there, we're setting up. They beat us to it. The crack of dawn, serving you. Beloved, I don't just say this sounds very self-serving in my position, but I know the guys would say this too. We are blessed at Westmount beyond measure. There is love in this place. This is the one ethic. As soon as I set foot on the ground candidating at this church, I'm like, I have not seen love like this. Look, we're not perfect. Do we scratch and claw one another? Yeah, I do. Some of you are, I know, sick of me. But listen, we love one another. We love one another. And that's what Paul is talking about. Westmount, don't ever let off the gas from loving one another. Don't ever, ever let off the gas. I love you for it. And it's a love that we all know, church, doesn't flow from ourselves. This is the beauty of Westmount, too. You know it. When you talk to the Westmount Christian, they know ultimately that's not from them, this love that they have. I mean, in one sense, don't get me wrong, God has put you together very well. But this love, this sacrifice for the brethren, you know it's not from you. You know, Westmount, it's a love you could never conjure up yourselves. It's a love not only given by God, but it is modeled by the Son of God. You have a love for others that is self-denying, self-giving, and self-sacrificing. It's a type of love, and let me just read this as we transition to the table. This is the kind of love, the example you follow. We read Philippians 2 earlier. Let me just keep reading. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the love that he gave for us. But not that we would just take it in, right? We're not a bunch of dead seas that just take in water and don't have any outflow. God didn't die for you, Christian, for that. And here at Westmount, you know that. He gave you love to go and give that love. And that is what you do, giving that love to each other. I was reminded recently, David is so good at reminding us of this when he does the table. had another brother remind me of this recently. When we come to the table, we remember Christ, but we do it with one another. Do it with one another. Just turn to 1 Corinthians as we end and go to the table. I want us all to see this. This is why we go to the table corporately together, 1 Corinthians 11, this infamous passage that we go to so often for the Lord's table, but we're going to start in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse, so something is wrong in Corinth, and what is it? For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Divisions would be the opposite of what? Unity. Unity. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Then, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, listen to what he says here when you think about loving one another. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. Can you just picture the Corinthians? their little brown bags on their islands, right? And it's more than that. I got my stuff. I don't know about Bob and all of that, but I got mine. I got my own meal. One goes hungry. Can you imagine remembering the lord and someone's going hungry? That's not loving one another. Another gets drunk. You talk about the height of selfishness. I mean drunkenness not only is it sinful, it is the paramount of selfishness. What? Verse 22, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? In other words, you want to do your own business and take care of your own self? Go do it in your own home, paraphrasing Paul there. Or do you despise the church of God? Here it is. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. In other words, the Corinthians were not loving one another and they were bringing that unlove, that flesh to the table. But, beloved, as we go to the table now, let's remind ourselves of the ultimate example, but also of the fact, and this is where I really want us to orbit at the table today, in love for one another. We're going to do this corporately as we do often at Westmount. You're just going to hang on to it, and I'm going to come, and we're going to partake together. But as you do this, I want you to just, this may sound really cheesy for some, but you know me, you're passing the tray to one another. That's what you're doing. It's a reciprocal thing, passing the tray. We're not going to have music over that. We're going to do it like we normally do in that sense, quiet reflection. But think about your brothers and sisters here in the aisles, the ones serving you below, the ones that have served you, and you know, I don't have to say it, beloved, some of you have been served like crazy with the love of the saints here. That's what I want you to think about. Christ laid down his life so that we would lay down our lives for each other. 1 John three sixteen. And that's what we want to keep in mind as we go to the table today. And it will be an expression of the table. We don't do very often. Again, we'll do a corp release, so they're going to be together when you take it. When you pass the trade, just keep them together, and I'm going to come up once everyone has it, and we're going to partake together. So let me pray. Let's settle our hearts, and then later on we will we will sing together as well. Father.